I will begin with the reading of the text for preaching, which is uh, Matthew 13, 47 through 52. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 47. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So will it be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray briefly. Thank you again, Lord, for, uh, in your providence, bringing this text to our focus. Please help us to understand it according to the sense in which you uh, inspired it to be preserved for us. Help us to gain and apply the messages that are there. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, in the immediate context of this, uh, there were other uh, short parables. Um, There was the parable of the weeds in the field, beginning in verse 24, which Jesus explains fully in verse 36. And uh, it is about the fact that the church or the kingdom in history always includes those who are not truly interested in the gospel. The weeds in the field. Um, They are there among the the wheat for other reasons. Uh, The devil is involved in inspiring the weeds to identify with the church, to be in the field. Um, That's clear from Jesus' explanation. By the way, there is additional significance because this field is the world, according to Jesus, not the nation of Israel, but the world. God has a plan for the whole world, and uh, that is very clear. Um, This brief statement presupposes that the mission of God is beyond mere Israel, but involves the whole world. The second parable, which led up toward the passage that we're considering, is the treasure in the field. The treasure in the field, the man found this treasure and it shows the great value of the gospel to the believer. Found a treasure and then went out and uh, didn't pick it up and carry it home, but went out and bought the field. Because according to rabbinic law, if a workman came upon a treasure in a field and lifted it out, it would belong to his master, the field's owner. But this man is careful not to lift the treasure out until he has bought the field. So again, the value, the great value of the gospel, uh, the treasure in the field. And then thirdly, the pearl of great value. Uh, That shows the great value of the kingdom above all other things. 
Uh, here this person goes to great extremes to buy this pearl which was found. The point is about the necessity of sacrificing all to appropriate the kingdom. And Jesus himself is the true treasure. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that is the, um, the context of the portion that we're now going to consider. And the first part of the portion is uh, the parable of the dragnet. The parable of the dragnet. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Here Jesus is instructing his disciples about the reality of the kingdom so that they would not be disappointed when some members of the kingdom proved false. You see, the church in history attracts followers into her fold during the course of history, and they are baptized into the visible church, and more or less, or sometimes not at all, taught about what it means to be a Christian. Um, so that's part of how people get into the visible church, baptism and some teaching, perhaps more or less. Some others join into the historical church in history uh, for various other reasons. Uh, what does this look like in our day? Well, there was a time not so long ago in the United States of America where every, every respectable person um, was a member of some church or other. It was the respectable thing to do. So in the Deep South, if you were a doctor or a lawyer or a business owner, you joined First Baptist Church on Main Street or maybe the United Methodist Church um, or the Presbyterian Church. That was another option in some parts of the South. Uh, in the Midwest, if you were uh, living there, you would probably join uh, the Methodist Church or the Lutheran Church. And if you lived in New England, uh, you might join the Congregational Church or the Unitarian Church. Uh, or maybe the Episcopalians. By the way, if you've ever been to small towns in Vermont, New Hampshire, upstate Connecticut, every little town has two tall churches, the Congregational Church and the Unitarian Church, and the great competition is who has the tallest steeple. No one really goes to church much anymore, but uh, they're, they're concerned about who has the tallest steeple, and they maintain their buildings with great care even though uh, they're just historic uh, points of interest. But in those days, long ago, respectable people would join some church and take their kids to Sunday school and attend at least once in a while. Um, there are also large ethnic groups uh, where church membership is expected as part of that ethnicity. Think of the Irish in the northeastern states, such as Massachusetts and New York. Um, or think of large concentrations of Italian or Polish groups who are Roman Catholic by default. Or Greek ethnic groups 
where there are large communities of Greek people. Uh, recall my, my big fat Greek wedding, for instance, you know. You've gotta be Greek. You've gotta be a member of the Greek church. And uh, black people uh, also would do the same sorts of things. Most black people in the United States would be members of the National Baptist Church, which is the black version of the Baptist Church. Uh, not the Southern Baptist Church, but the National Baptist Church, or the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, I served in St. Mary's County, um, down where the first state house was, St. Mary's City. I served there for 15 years, and it's interesting, uh, that was a very Catholic county, St. Mary's County, after all, you know. But um, that county uh, has the second largest percentage of black members of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the, the largest is New Orleans, but St. Mary's County is the second largest concentration of black Catholic folks. And so these kinds of things happen. People are drawn into the church for secondary reasons, their ethnicity, their, their race, their, um, or just respectability, as I said earlier. And by the way, uh, as you may know, many Scottish or Scotch-Irish, which is what I am, ethnic folks uh, find their home in Presbyterian churches, uh, especially in the states that were part of the original 13 colonies. Um, by the way, uh, Presbyterians in the colonies were not allowed to operate in the civilized uh, areas of the colonies. Um, uh, Samuel Davies, uh, applied to preach as a Presbyterian in the colonies in Virginia. He had to go to Williamsburg and ask permission to preach because the Anglican church you know, had control of Virginia. And uh, the, um, the Anglicans gave him permission to preach only in the back parts of Virginia. In other words, over the, the Blue Ridge Mountains west of there, the back parts. But then those Scotch-Irish developed lots of congregation in the back parts. Uh, so there are reasons why people join in the church, historically and culturally and uh, respect-wise. <clears throat> now, even in churches like ours, there are baptized children uh, of various stripes. Uh, there are baptized children who make a formal profession of faith, but in time, some become apostates and are never returned to the fold. They leave. They grew up in it. They learned about it. They made a profession of faith and then they leave. Um, that happens also in churches that are credo-baptist. Um, some of those who make the profession and get baptized in that order uh, later on leave just as well. So it's not a matter of when you got baptized so much. Um, some of these people will tell you that, that they are saved because they were once saved and once saved, always saved. And they view their church membership that way. But the point Jesus is making, I think, here in this particular parable is that there is simply no way to ensure a, quote, believers only church. No way to ensure it. No way to ensure it in history before Christ returns. Uh, 
Only God knows what is in each person's heart since he is the giver of the gift of faith, which is the instrument of applying Christ's salvation. And so what he's telling his disciples here is that they should not be discouraged when some turn away. This reminds me of what happened in John chapter 6 after Jesus had done the great um, feeding of the 5,000 and then claimed to be the bread from heaven that came down and claimed to give his blood as life-giving drink. Um, John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. So the disciples in this parable, as Jesus is teaching them, should not be surprised at such things. They should not expect a perfect church or a believer's only church, not in history. And the leaders of the church, pastors and elders, therefore should require baptism and a credible profession of personal faith from those who would be communicant members, yes. And they should go on to teach their people the whole counsel of God and exercise oversight and discipline over those under their care. But according to Jesus, they cannot know definitively who is saved, who is elect. They may not expect a, quote, believers only church. To do so is folly and the presumption of knowing what only God knows. And so Jesus says, there will be a time when it will be made clear. In verse 48, the final judgment is depicted. When it was full, that is the dragnet, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And then Jesus says the angels will do that in the final judgment and cast the bad into the fire. There will come a day when the offer of the gospel ends and Christ shall return. And the whole number of the church in history will be complete. The net will be full. The number of the elect also will be complete. So in our confession of faith, we have this same teaching uh, in chapter 25. It says the visible church, that is the church in history, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, that is not confined to one nation as before under the law, the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, and of their children, 
and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The visible church cannot be made perfect in history, but it is still very important outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And then uh, the, the confession goes on to say in the next article, unto this Catholic visible church Christ Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. And, verse, and then in section four, this Catholic church hath been sometimes more and sometimes less visible. And particular churches which are members thereof are more or less pure according to the doctrine of the gospel taught and embraced. Ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. And then this final section. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. That's what Jesus is telling his men here with this parable. It's a dragnet, and you're going to gather in all kinds of professing people. And don't expect a perfect church on earth. So verse 49, Jesus says, So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our confession of faith in its 25.1 says this, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, this is what we're talking about here now, at the end. It's going to be visible in the future at the judgment, but right now you can't see it all because it's spread out all over history. And it's in the final eschaton. Uh, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect. Not the whole number of those who profess, but the whole number of the elect that have been or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's what we're looking for in the long run. Again, to cap this this portion of, the, of, the, this, of this scripture, to expect to find a believer's only church is a mistake and a folly. And Jesus made this clear to his disciples and to the church to the present day, my friends. Let's not be shaken by the messy nature of the visible church or by apostasy in our own churches. It is sad to lose those who were baptized and once professed faith. I know ruling elders who raised their children in the faith, children who were baptized and taught and professed and have turned away and have left the fold. It's sad to lose those but it is not to be unexpected. So what shall we do? Continue 
to baptize and teach and train and expect profession of faith and guide those who are under the care of the visible church and pray for reformation. We're in a time that needs great reformation and pray for a revival and a recovery of those who stray. But do not be shocked by these situations. They're normal, according to Jesus. And so having, having had those, those parables, which I began with the first three and then focused in on this fourth one, having had those taught, now Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them in verse 51, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Um, what's he referring to here? They're having a special, he's commissioning them in a sense, or he will certainly commission them a little, little bit later to teach, to teach, to teach, to baptize and teach all that I have commanded you, all that I have taught you. Um, and so what is he talking about is the topic here. Well, I think we see it in various places. Um, one is uh, from the Ephesians passage, which I read earlier, Ephesians 2, verses 17 through 22, where it says about Jesus, Paul says about Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Who's he talking about there? The Gentiles, the nations, you who were far off, way out there, not part of the God's people. And peace to those who were near, that is the Jews who had all the oracles of God and the temple and the sacrificial system and all that advantage. He says, for through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's saying that to the Gentiles. You're in now. That's the new thing. It's an amazing thing. It's the new thing. And, um, and then in the second section I read from Ephesians 3, in verse 9, um, well, verse 8, to me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and then this, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, the mystery hidden for ages in God. That's the new treasure that he's talking about here, that they're to bring out. And it was concealed with the old treasure of what God had done with Israel and how he had taught them and brought them and everything. And so Paul is here now saying that here's the old and the new together and it brings, brings us into one body. That old treasure, um, that old treasure was described in, in many places, but... Uh, we read uh, from Isaiah 2 about how the nations will come up to the mountain of the Lord and they will ask God to teach them. We read that earlier. And then here's another one. There are so many I could quote from many places, but Isaiah 25, this is a beautiful one. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. All peoples, not just the Jews. Uh, Well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain. Mountains are the government of God. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth where the Lord has spoken. And there goes on. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's the old treasure that was there, but they didn't know what it meant. How is this going to happen that, that all these nations are going to come to this great feast and be blessed in the government of God, the mountain of God? How is that going to happen? Well, the main idea that Jesus was teaching uh, to his disciples who had claimed to understand what Jesus was saying is that they are now responsible to bring forth their understanding to others. You got this? Okay. Now you give it out. You understand what was in the Old Testament? This mystery, this wonderful promise that God would would save the world, as he also, by the way, said to Abraham, uh, I will make you the father of many and you will be a blessing to all nations. That truth, now you finally get it, you understand it more clearly now, you need to bring out the treasure and give it to others. This storehouse contains things new, that is the the understanding of things old, really. The promise unfolded and then now made very, very clear. The mystery that was hidden in God, as he, Paul says. So the paraphrase of this would be something like this to his disciples and to you and me. After you have been instructed by me, Jesus, you have the knowledge not only of things you used to know, but of things you never knew before, and even the knowledge of, that you had before has been illuminated by what I have told you. The old and the new together. So how does this work for you and me today? How can we apply it in our thinking? What do your neighbors and your co-workers know about the Christian faith? What do they know or think about the Christian faith. They might know that you're a Christian, you know. So what do they know about what it means to be a Christian? Well, there's there's two versions of what they might think about the Christian faith. There's the heavy version. uh, That is that the Christian faith is a list of rules to be obeyed or else, and you'll be judged if you don't. And that the Bible is a rule book. They may think that. As you interact with them, yeah, you're one of those people who, uh, who uh, follows that rule book, and you're one of those people who, who lists, keeps the rules, and you're always doing the right thing, and yeah, yeah, that's really what you are. That's what a Christian is, is a rule keeper. It's the heavy version. And there's a light version as well, which is actually becoming more of a, a thing now. Uh, the light version is God, whatever that is, <laughs> God whoever she is, (laughs) loves everybody 
and will never judge anybody. And the Bible, which was written by men, contains many inspirational stories and sayings such as, do unto others, etc., etc. And one of their favorite ones that they love from the Bible is, judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> and as they think about things in the Bible, if they know anything about the Bible, uh, they, they think of the story of Noah's Ark, for instance, uh, uh, as a cute story about an old man and a boat brimful of animals with a rainbow in the background. Okay. Um, when, it's actually, when it's actually about what? Divine judgment <laughs> on the whole world of sinners except eight persons with a rainbow given as a reminder that God will judge another way in the final judgment. But now add the, now add the understanding that the Apostle Peter gives in 1 Peter 3. Um, this is the new treasure kind of thing. 1 Peter 3, 20. He refers to the, the story of Noah's Ark and he says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And he elaborates on what, what the story of Noah was really about. Taught by Christ, Peter here is saying that Christ is a lot like the ark. He's basically saying we are all guilty sinners who deserve to be destroyed, but those who are in Christ come through the judgment and are not destroyed, but are rather saved. He says that in verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. So Peter, taking that old treasure and bringing new treasure to it, is saying that baptism is like the flood and like the ark. And those who are in the ark come through the flood of God's judgment for our sins, and yet they live. And what mattered in the time of the ark and what matters in our day is for your personal safety is that you were inside the ark. That's what Peter is talking about. That's the treasure, the new treasure, the wonderful treasure. He boils it all down, and, and what it means is what saves you is being inside Christ, in union with Christ. That's the treasure old and new, you see, of the story of the ark and Noah and of Christ. And your friends and your family, my dear friends, need to know this. They need to know this. The, the Bible is not a book of rules. And it's not an inspirational book that you pull a few little verses out and God loves everybody. No. Your friends and family and neighbors need to know this. They need to understand the Bible and the Christian faith accurately in order to make a real assessment of it, in order to even understand you. Now, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, I went to church and Sunday school. And Sunday school stories were were taught with a flannel graph. If you're old enough, you might know what a flannel graph was. Um, it's a little, little pictures that you put on a board as you tell the story, okay? Um, 
but they were taught as moral tales. Moral tales. The heavy version of what the Bible's all about, the book of rules. Moral tales. And so you get the story of Daniel, you know. Be like Daniel. <laughs> you know, be like Daniel. Um, don't be like Samson. <laughs> um, be like David sometimes. Be like David in his conflict with Goliath. But don't be like David with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. I had no idea, no idea what these stories had to do with Jesus. None. They were interesting. They were fun, I guess. But I had no idea what they, what they meant. And in fact, honestly, the way I was raised, not, not that it was bad, I, my parents were great. But even the stuff about Jesus, the stories about Jesus, what he did here and there, feeding 5,000, making people well, dying on a cross, being raised up, it was just a series of stories with the resurrection as the, as the end and the ascension. So what Jesus is teaching you and me here is that, that understanding these things biblically, theologically, we're now the scribes. And we have these treasures, and some of them are old, and some of them are new, and they're from Christ. And so we are to get the treasure out, get the treasure out to those around us and with us, and to teach others. We are to teach children in the church, the old and the new, and how it works together. And that the Bible is not a rule book, although it has rules. And that the Bible is the story of God's grace, the story of redemption, the story of a plan to save the whole world that's being unfolded in history. We're to show our coworkers and our neighbors that we're not just a bunch of people with a bunch of rules. Oh, we're not just a bunch of spiritual people who like Bible verses. No, we're people who understand the scope of history, understand what God is doing that he's revealed in the Old Testament and now revealed even more clearly with understanding in the New Testament. We're the people who know how God is working and what, it, what matters. And we need to teach those things. That's what we have here in the passage, I believe. So may God help us uh, to know that there's no ch perfect church, no believers only congregation, and not be disappointed when things go badly in some cases. Keep praying, keep working, keep hoping, but don't be disappointed with the church on earth. Bring out the whole meaning to all those around us. Bring it out. Teach it. Amen. Let us pray.